It's a pleasure for me to be with you again. Thank you for the invitation. Isaac mentioned Ken Griffey Jr. and uh, the emptiness of life without Christ as we began this morning, and I felt compelled to share an anecdote with you. A few years ago, and for several years, we enjoyed the fellowship of Dan Nolte uh, and his family. Uh, Dan is now a church planter in our Presbyterian Church in America in Michigan. But for a time, he was a pitcher in the big leagues. And uh, some of that time with uh, the New York Yankees in one of the years they won a World Series. And uh, it happened, if you remember in those days, that there was some tension between the Mariners and the Yankees. And uh, the Yankees were playing in Seattle. And uh, something happened in the game, and there was a brouhaha, and the, and the dugouts emptied, and as is required in baseball culture, that means that all the pitchers in the bullpen had likewise to run to the infield to participate in, in uh, defending their team's honor. So Dan Nolte found himself sort of trotting in toward the infield, Uh, but was on a path of convergence with Ken Griffey Jr., who was trotting in from center field, as the Mariners were in the field at that time. And uh, they came to a point where they met, and Ken Griffey Jr. grabbed Dan's front of his uniform and said, Now, Dan, let's just hold on to one another. And uh, that, will, that will appear as if we are involved in this uh, confrontation, uh, but none of us will get injured and nothing bad will happen. And Dad's, Dan's response was, Ken Griffey Jr. knows my name. I have, I have reached the pinnacle of life. But as a matter of fact, at that point in his life, he was on drugs. Uh, He was an emotional and spiritual wreck. He didn't know what in the world to do with his life. The Lord converted him in uh, the next several years wonderfully and transformed his life in every single way. But uh, there you have the perfect illustration of the emptiness of life without Christ and Ken Griffey, Jr. (laughs) Now to the Word of God. We're reading from Matthew chapter 15, the verses 21 to 28. I want to speak to you this morning about faith, about what it means to believe in God and in Jesus Christ. You and I operate far too much of the time with a superficial understanding of faith and appreciation of our own faith. We find thinking of ourselves as believers far too easy to do and consider all of that too glibly. And since the Lord himself draws attention to this subject in the famous interaction about which we are to read, what better place to go for a deeper, truer understanding of faith? We are to live by faith. What does that mean? 
How is that done? More than that, everything that you want to be as a Christian, everything you know you ought to be as a Christian, depends upon the strength of your faith. If you had a stronger faith, you would mortify some of the sins that have not yet been mortified in your life. If you had a stronger faith, you would be a more confident witness to the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ to your friends and neighbors than now you are. If you had a stronger faith, you would have a greater love for God and for others. So when the Lord Jesus Christ himself draws attention to the question of faith and its meaning, and then shows us what true faith really is, you and I should pay attention. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Zidon. Jesus did not conduct evangelistic missions in Gentile territory. He, as we will hear him say in verse 24, um, was sent to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. There is no evidence in the Gospels that Jesus ever so much as entered the home of a Gentile. So his withdrawal from the region of Tyre and Zidon, that is north of Galilee, was not for ministry. It was for the purpose of rest and recuperation and perhaps some further instruction of his disciples. But as often before, his plans for a retreat were thwarted by the people's knowledge that he had come into their area. Even the Gentiles had heard of his miraculous power to heal the sick. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The fact that this Gentile woman addresses Jesus as the son of David suggests some understanding on her part. The fact that she pleads for mercy indicates she knew she had no particular claim on the Lord's attention. That humility on the part of this Gentile woman was precisely what was so often lacking among the Lord's own people. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Jesus didn't answer her. He usually responded quickly to appeals for help from other people, and sometimes probably not infrequently, offered help before he was asked. But here he answers not a word. The disciples seem to mean that Jesus should give the woman what she was asking for so that she would leave. In other uses of the word here translated send away, the dismissal comes after the desire had been satisfied. Further, the Lord's reply to them in the next verse, makes more sense if the disciples were, in fact, asking Jesus to do for this woman what she wanted. But as was probably surprising to them as well, he said no. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was, you remember, the Lord's consistent strategy. However much in his teaching He may have anticipated the worldwide gospel mission that would follow upon his resurrection. 
It was to the Jews that he was sent, he said, and it was the Jews who occupied his attention during his ministry. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She came. Apparently she had been calling to Jesus from some distance up to this point, And now she comes right up to him, falls on her knees before him and begs for help. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Matthew makes it clear that the purpose of this episode so far as he recorded it in his gospel was to draw attention to the faith of this woman. It reports another of the Lord's miraculous healings, but the report that the woman's daughter was healed is almost an afterthought. The climax is found in the Lord's remark to the woman, you have great faith. Clearly, the way he responded to her, not replying to her at first and then speaking so peremptorily to her, was designed to test her faith. And her faith met that test. And it was to her faith that the Lord drew our attention. It's obviously important that this woman was a Gentile and not a Jew. She is even called a Canaanite. This is the only use of the term in the New Testament. It it had inevitable associations for the reader with the pagan, the wicked people, the Jews displaced from the promised land, in the days of Moses and Joshua. Calling her a Canaanite, making her in that way as different from an Israelite as was possible, only makes his remark about this woman's great faith the more striking and the more memorable. Indeed, this Canaanite woman is the only person in the Gospels who is commended for having a great faith. Only two people are praised for their faith in the Gospel of Matthew. Both of them are Gentiles, this woman and a Roman centurion in chapter 8, verse 10. The Lord had spoken of his disciples' little faith as recently as chapter 14, verse 13, and he will speak of their little faith again as soon as chapter 16, verse 8. But here he draws attention to this woman's great faith. So far, the word of God. Our Father in heaven, we know that these anecdotes recorded for us in the Gospels are part of the revelation of the Gospel and the Christian life. We know that it is by the means of these little pieces of history that our faith is taught, is illustrated, is made inspiring to us. And we pray, our Father, that this wonderful piece of history, this interaction between our Savior and the Syrophoenician woman, will now serve those holy purposes in our hearts, instructing us, inspiring us. 
We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We know from the way in which this narrative is crafted that its main lesson is a lesson about faith in Jesus Christ. This woman had great faith. So you and I are to ask ourselves, what made her faith great? Why should the Lord have pointed out to us and the Christian ages this woman's actions as an illustration of great faith? And the key to the answer is found in the response the Lord made to this woman when she came to him crying out in desperation for her daughter. The Lord's response is not only surprising to us, it is troubling, and it has troubled generations of readers of the Bible. One commentator describes the Lord's reply to this woman as harsh, brutal, offensive. He describes the Lord's reply to her in verse 24 as an atrocious saying, expressing incredible insolence. The worst kind of chauvinism, he says. George Bernard Shaw, the famous English playwright, once wrote of the Lord's treatment of this woman that this was a time when Jesus was not a Christian. Well, that's preposterous. Jesus was not a Christian. He makes people Christians. And obviously, he was not only after something from this woman, but he got from her what he was after. Even more perceptive and sympathetic commentators fall over themselves trying somehow to take the sting out of the Lord's silence in the first place and his peremptory reply in the second. One popular commentator writes, The tone and the look with which a thing is said make all the difference. Even a thing which seems hard can be said with a disarming smile. We can call a friend an old villain or a rascal with a smile and a tone which takes all the sting out of it and which fills it with affection. We can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes robbed his words of all insult and bitterness. A far better, more serious commentator says a similar thing. Written words cannot convey the twinkle in the eye, and it may be that Jesus was almost jocularly presenting her with the sort of language she might expect from a Jew in order to see how she would react. No! That's surely a great mistake. The whole power of this episode and its lesson about faith is derived precisely from the fact that the Lord rebuffed this woman turned his shoulder and did so in what would seem to be an unnecessarily cruel way. There's no way to sugarcoat the Lord's reply in verse 26. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. The Lord, after all, is responding to a desperate mother's plea for the life of her daughter. She's afraid She's brokenhearted, and she comes to Jesus thinking that she will be shown mercy, which is what she's asking for. And he replies by saying he can't be bothered speaking to a dog. He's busy with higher things. To be sure, we don't know precisely in what tone of voice the Lord uttered that remark, but 
had Matthew wanted us to know that the Lord had pulled his punch in some way, he certainly could have and would have made that clear. The text must stand on its own as the Lord's response. And clearly, it is dismissive of this woman, and intentionally so. There is a harsh character to his words. Dog was a current Jewish term of abuse for Gentiles. And this woman, who knew to call Jesus the son of David, knew all too well what Jews thought about Gentiles. And here Jesus confirms all that she knew. I think the last thing we should think is that Jesus made that remark with a smile or a chuckle and thereby took the sting out of his words. The woman's reply in verse 27 as the reply of a woman of great faith seems clearly to contradict that inter- interpretation of the Lord's remark. She was being rebuffed. She was being treated dismissively. What is more, it was a harsh thing to say about Gentiles in particular and about this Gentile, Gentile the kind of thing she knew very well a Jew might think and might even say about someone like her. She was not a child. She was a dog. Her faith is great precisely because she replied to that powerful a rebuff as she did, not being put off by it, but continuing to press the Lord for the help she knew he alone could give her. One of the great works of Reformed spirituality was written as a series of sermons on this paragraph. It is Samuel Rutherford's The Trial and Triumph of Faith. And in that perceptive title, Rutherford reminds us of the true nature of this episode. The Lord Jesus tried this woman's faith, and she triumphed by faith in that trial. There would be no trial if we took the sting out of the Lord's non-reply in the first place, his his apparent indifference to this woman's plight, and out of his hard words when finally he did speak. The Lord was testing this woman and discovering the strength of her faith. And there would be no triumph if the woman's faith had not persevered in the face of the Lord's apparent rebuff. Think of what stood in this woman's way. She was a Gentile going to a Jew for help. Today, in a mostly Gentile church and a mostly Gentile world, we find it hard to appreciate how utterly unlikely that was. It would be something like a white, middle-class man in the South in the days of Jim Crow going cap in hand to a black man to ask him for help only he could provide. Or worse, it would be like the black man going to the town racist to ask for a very, very large favor. Then the woman cries to the Lord. We get the impression that there are other people there, that she had to make herself heard above others. She had had to stand at a distance and forget herself and start yelling at the Lord for his help. As a woman, in those days, that was a still greater violation of social norms. And he paid no attention to her. 
She was at some point intercepted by the disciples and clearly they showed no real personal sympathy for this woman or her plight. They wanted to get rid of her. She was an interruption. She was ruining their plans for a quiet getaway. But she pressed through until she was on her knees before the Lord pleading with him for mercy for her daughter. And when finally she had his full attention He calls her a dog and says he has better things to do with his time. Other people are more important to him than she is. Nothing has happened to this woman since she came into the sight of Jesus that has gone well. Nothing has given her reason to think that Jesus actually would help her. But she kept looking to him and crying to him. And even when rebuffed in that peremptory way, She came right back and in effect offered him another chance to tell her that she and her problem were completely unimportant to him. That is the great faith. Jesus himself tells us is what he wants us to carry away from this history. That's the kind of faith he wants you and I to have. He's given us a picture of it. So we could see it in action. When commentators talk about Jesus speaking to this woman with a smile, or saying what he said in verses 24 and 26 with a chuckle, they're forgetting what the Christian life is actually like. And how often the Lord seems to be so indifferent to the problems of his children. I read a very sad story not so long ago, a story about a great evil that was done in our society. A Christian woman, I think there are many such women like this in America's cities. A Christian woman who lived in inner city Baltimore. People described her as a joyful Christian, always ready to speak of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ always ready to praise him for his grace and love. Her husband ran afoul of the law and was sentenced to prison. She waited for him, raising her children by working at menial jobs for small pay and keeping the house ready for the day when he would finally come home. She took the children to the prison to visit their father as often as she could preparing them for the day when he would finally return to his family. She waited and prayed for that day, and it finally came. During his stay in prison, however, as too often happens, separated so long from his wife, this man engaged in sex with other men, and in so doing, he contracted AIDS. He had a faithful wife at home, a better wife than most of his fellow prisoners had, most of them who were married when they, were in, were, when they went to prison had long since been divorced by their wives. But this woman had not divorced her husband. She had loved him through thick and thin. Do you know that such is our culture's worship of sex and now of homosexual sex that it is strictly illegal for professionals for government agencies to reveal to anyone that a person has AIDS. 
The medical providers in that prison knew that her husband had AIDS when he left prison to go home. But no one told her. No one told her what her husband had done in prison or what had happened as a consequence. His right to confidentiality, society's unwillingness in any way to confine his sexual pleasure or activity and to avoid any stigma for his sexual activities meant that by returning to his faithful Christian wife, he murdered her. She was not a woman who could afford the fancy drug cocktails that lengthen the life of AIDS patients today. She was infected and she died. He died too. But he shouldn't have had been allowed to kill her and leave their children with no parents at all. But that's precisely what he did and what our government abetted him in doing. Now, I want you to think of that woman's story from the viewpoint of the Lord's encounter with this Canaanite woman. This faithful wife and mother who so long and so often came to Jesus crying out for her husband and his soul discovers that now in answer to all of those prayers she has AIDS from the very man for whom she had so earnestly and for so long sought the Lord's help. What is the difference between that and Jesus refusing to answer this woman at all in the first place? And what is the difference between that and the Lord telling this Canaanite woman it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Does it not seem that the Lord dealt callously with this faithful wife and mother? Does it not seem to you that he was unkind toward her? Unfeeling? Unbelievers would certainly think so. Is it not often the teaching of the Bible? Is it not often the confession of the psalmist? Has it not been the experience and the anguished admission of Christians in the ages since that Christ often seems not to answer our prayers at all? And then when he does answer... To be hard, unfeeling, unconcerned about us. Is this not the mystery of faith that the Bible prepares us to face time and time again? Is this not the message of entire books of the Bible? Books such as Job and Ecclesiastes. That believing people will not be able to tell what the Lord is doing, will not be able to see how he is loving them or keeping his promises to them or providing for them or answering their prayers. And is it not true that true and living faith must again and again surmount these contrary appearances to trust that the Lord knows best and is loving us through it all. True faith must believe the word of God in defiance of appearances. True faith must keep coming to Christ in the sure and certain hope of his love, no matter that he has appeared to be utterly disinterested in what we have to say. The unbeliever says, give it up as a bad job. It obviously doesn't work. You people trust the Lord Jesus for what you need 
and you get nothing in return. It's time you accepted the fact that there's nothing there, nothing real. You're kidding yourselves. But through the ages, true faith, living faith, and certainly great faith, has said instead, yet though he slay me, I will trust in him. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is what this woman in Baltimore did. Her husband died before she did. And through the months of her dying, people saw nothing so clearly as her love for Christ and her joy in his salvation. Let me illustrate this one more time. Since the Lord has given us an illustration, I'll give you two more. I've given you one. Here's the second. There is no figure in church history that I I admire more than Thomas Boston, the Scottish theologian and pastor in the early years of the 18th century. He was a faithful man, if ever there was a faithful man, a great preacher and Christian thinker, but he was a man who suffered greatly. Boston's wife was not a woman of robust health, and every childbirth was, for her, not only an ordeal, but a mortal threat. In April 1707, Boston records in his diary that he had prayed earnestly for his wife's safety as she was near to delivering a child. He says that while in prayer, he was given an impression that the child would be a boy. And at that moment, he promised the Lord that if it were a boy and he were delivered alive, he would name him Ebenezer, Hebrew for stone of help, the memorial that Samuel had erected in Israel according to 1 Samuel chapter 7. He writes that on the 23rd of that month of April, his wife safely delivered and his heart leaped for joy hearing that it was a boy and so Ebenezer. But in the entry for September of that same year, we read, It pleased the Lord for my further trial to remove by death on the 8th of September my son Ebenezer. He goes on, I had never more confidence with God in any such case than in that child's being the Lord's. I had indeed more than ordinary for in in giving him away to the Lord to be saved by the blood of Christ. But his death was exceeding afflicting to me and a matter of sharp exercise To bury his name was indeed harder than to bury his body. But I saw a necessity of allowing a latitude to God's sovereignty. A year later, in August 1708, Mrs. Boston delivered another son, whom Boston says, after no small struggle with myself, I named Ebenezer. But in October of that same year, this son, too, fell ill with the measles. Boston records how he went out to the barn and there prayed for his son. He writes, I renewed my covenant with God and did solemnly and explicitly covenant for Ebenezer. And in his name, accept of the covenant of Christ offered in the gospel and gave him away to the Lord before angels and the stones of that house as witnesses. I cried also for his life that Ebenezer might live before him. If it were his will, 
But when after that exercise I came into the house, I found that instead of being better, he was worse. And in a few hours, he was dead. After the funeral of this, his second Ebenezer, Boston wrote, I see most plainly that I must stoop and be content to follow the Lord in an untrodden path. I saw a necessity of allowing a latitude to God's sovereignty. Some years later, in a letter to a friend bereaved of a little child, Boston would later would write, I traveled that gloomy road six times. Not one such conversation with God about a dangerously sick child. But six. And every single one of them answered with a no. But what does Boston say? I saw the need to confess a latitude to God's sovereignty. I realized that I had to stoop. That is what faith is. That is what faith says. And that is what faith does. If we always got what we wanted from the Lord when we asked for it, it wouldn't be faith. It would be sight. It is precisely because we must believe, precisely because we cannot see, that it is a life of faith. And whatever else we say, the Bible has certainly prepared us for this. It has told us that the Lord would often seem to be ignoring our pleas. It has told us that he would often appear to be dealing harshly, unfeelingly with us. And it has told us that hidden in the Lord's no is always an eventual yes. Here's the point. Who but the living God and what but his gospel of love and eternal life could make a man or a woman who had suffered so cruelly nevertheless give glory to the one who had ordered such bitterness or a faithful daughter, or a faithful son. Who but the living God could afflict one of his children so terribly and have that child, in response, only worship his Father in heaven the more? Can you think of a more beautiful, a more convincing demonstration of the reality of God's presence in this world and in the life of his people than that it endures shocks like those. The unseen God, His grace, His love, His truth, His presence, is so real, it is so wonderful, it cannot be overwhelmed, it cannot be undone, even by the heaviest of heartbreaks in this world. It was so in that dear woman in Baltimore's life, it was so in Boston's, and it's to be so in your life and in mine. Samuel Rutherford perceptively wrote, it is said he answered her not a word, but it is not said he heard not one word. Those two differ much. His not answering is an answer and speaks thus, pray on, go on, cry on, for the Lord holdeth his door fast bolted, not to keep out, 
but that you may knock and knock some more. Fact is, Christ is after faith in you because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And so he is always testing your faith in order to make it stronger, purer. When faith is rewarded after continuing to besiege a silent heaven, or worse, when heaven seems uncaring and hard, but faith continues, a great lesson has been learned, and the believer is never the same. By that faith, by our faith, we read in Ephesians 3, God's wisdom, power, and goodness is made known to the powers of the unseen world. There is more going on in this world than your own personal experience. And the testing of your faith is part of that all happening that you cannot see, but which is vitally important. What is it, after all, that most proves the power of faith and the glory of faith in Jesus Christ? It is that one believes in defiance of appearances. Do you remember what C.S. Lewis has screw tape, the senior devil, say to Wormwood, the apprentice devil? Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do the enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Why? Because no faith will not obey. Weak faith will obey poorly fitfully, but strong faith will obey and will triumph again and again, overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. So heed the lesson. What the Lord showed us by his apparently unkind response to this dear woman was what it means to believe in him and how you and I must do it day after day after day. And then it is followed by another lesson. Although it took a persistent faith on her part, we cannot forget that the woman soon got precisely what she hoped for and asked for. Her faith was tried, but it triumphed to her own great joy in the healing of her daughter. The Lord may have tested her, but he blessed her in the end. He wanted her to demonstrate to his followers even after her life was long over. That great faith. That's why he responded to her as he did. So that through the ages believers would see this woman. Want to be this woman. And be inspired to be this woman. For strange as it may seem. This episode is not the description of rare and unusual circumstances in a believer's life. But of our everyday life. Yours and mine. One perceptive reader of the Bible, the Scott Alexander Moody Stewart wrote, the whole narrow way, that's the way that you and I are walking in this world every day. The whole narrow way is a series of mountains that rise up continually before you in your path and that are leveled 
continually to faith in Jesus Christ. And that leads him to say farther, men often speak of faith as if it were the easiest thing in the world. Of all things in the world, it is the most difficult. It is impossible for man. It is the gift of God. And when God gives it to you, you can be sure he will work to ensure that it grows and grows and grows. So, let you and I, in the confidence that faith will be tested and that it can triumph and receive its reward, let's put our faith to work. When it is tested, be glad that it will become stronger still. And be sure that if it seems the Lord is ignoring you, it is only to make greater the reward that your faith will receive at the end. Amen.